Non-stop talk radio, streaming 24 hours a day. The Internet's good for more than just games and gossip, people. You're listening to TalkZone.com. And now, more sports and torts with David Spada and Elliot Heron. Elliot, I can't wait to talk to our next guest. This gentleman won an NCAA championship in Kentucky. He played for the St. Louis Hawks, which you remember watching him play when you were a youth. Yes, a long time ago. He was part of the line with Clyde Lavellet and Bob Pettit. They called him the Unmatchables. He won the 1958 NBA championship with St. Louis. And then he went, it was Kentucky's AD for about 13 years and didn't do bad, do bad there. He's still living in Kentucky. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. We got on the line Cliff Hagen. How are you doing, Cliff? Just great. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Cliff, what do you think about Kentucky here? Everybody says you should win the uh, championship, no problem. That basically they made the Final Four with all these upsets. I don't know if they know what they're talking about. Uh, <laughs> they weren't talking that way two weeks ago. They were talking that way when we were going into the Southeastern Conference uh, tournament. Not even sure we'd win one game there. We were a bad um, road team in our conference. Only won a couple of road games. So I I, I don't know where all this Las Vegas talk is coming from. Well, you look around, you say, if they can beat Connecticut, then they, all they have to do is beat the winner of the Butler-VCU uh, game. If, and... if we can beat Connecticut? Yeah, minor details. We, we lost to Connecticut by 17 points uh, back uh, early in the out in Maui. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, but I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. It gets us in, in the proper uh, mental spirit that to to go into a game like that. But uh, Connecticut is very, very tough, and, and no one, the Kentucky fans and certainly the players, are not overlooking um, Connecticut. What has been the key to Kentucky's success late in the year? I think they've come together really. Uh, you know, they're just a bunch of young people. Uh, Freshmen, you know, well, we did have, we do have three uh, upperclassmen that have contributed uh, significantly. But uh, I think just just coming together, maturing these young people, uh, three of them in, in particular, and then uh, Harrelson uh, really getting to play this year for the first time, slowly developing and getting in shape. And uh, but still, uh, we we have our problems. Seem like. Uh, uh, people that are able to drive uh, get a lot of layups against the Kentucky team. That that has bothered me all along, particularly last year uh, when we played West Virginia. They they had a substitute guard in there that I don't know got about 16 points or something, just driving down the middle. And we don't seem to be be able to keep people from driving down the middle. And and we're not great shot blockers, but somehow we managed to pull it out. Now you know what it's like to be a young college player and win a championship. You were a sophomore when Kentucky won. Right. And that was in the days when they had freshman teams, so that was the equivalent of being a freshman nowadays. Right. Uh, you also had players who stayed all four years in college. Oh, sure. No, everybody. <laughs> now I would assume it's a little more difficult to de- develop that cohesiveness that uh, that you'd like. I, you know, I, the coaches really have to be psychiatrists, I think, to deal with uh, these young people, uh, one and done, sort of speak. They just uh, they think they're uh, good enough, really, for the NBA coming out of high school. They've already got that uh, mind frame. And then you have to deal with these e- egos and uh, uh, set them down and uh, discipline and 
uh, monitor their playing time to try to get their attention the best you can and, and hope uh, they, they mature along the way. And, and thank goodness our young, young people have, I think, more so than our, our team of last year. Now you see a team like VCU, which has a lot of upperclassmen, and they've developed as a team a little more mature. And there's that trade-off of maturity versus, you know, just flat-out ability of, of young guys who will be one and done. Right, and and uh, and you got to be lucky. Uh, the last uh, we we've shot very well in in this tournament, as as so many of the other teams too. But but uh, it seemed like we we our, our three-point shooting has has just been been tremendous, and that that sort of has has carried us carried us through at times. What's amazing is. Last year, you had five players go in the first round of the NBA draft, and Calipari just comes back and wins again this year and does better with basically lesser talent, they're saying. Yeah, I, 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 I call it a miracle, really. Uh, I've been saying that just with, with every every win uh, uh, toward the end of the season and then getting into the winning the tournament, our South, South Asian Conference tournament in Atlanta, then coming on through beating... Uh, uh, teams, uh, West Virginia that beat us last year, then beating North Carolina that beat us earlier in this season, and and, and, and beating them uh, soundly, I think, and uh, uh, they did, they just matured for for young people, and then then our our veterans have, have come through strongly. Uh, I, 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 it's, it, I think it's a little bit of a miracle for for Big Blue. <laughs> Now, as a former AD, is is it my imagination, or, or do coaches move around a lot more frequently than when you were the athletic? Oh, I, I think so. I played for Coach Rupp, and he was there, I think, forty-two years, and Joe B. Hall was there ten or so. And uh, uh, I think it's a relatively new new phenomenon. And I I, I don't know. Uh, well, I guess it has to do with money. <laughs> okay, I'm an attorney, and when you have a contract, you have a contract, but it seems like the NCA lets these coaches go wherever they want. I mean, if, when you were the AD, wouldn't it upset you if, say, Joe B. Hall came to you or Eddie Sutton after you and said, you know what, I got a better offer from Missouri, kind of like what happened Purdue yesterday. I want an eight-year extension of my contract or else I'm leaving. Seems, seems like there, there was a little bit more of a loyalty uh, back 20 years ago. Uh, People were, were settled and, and, and wanted their families. You know, there many of them were raising, rearing children and wanted to settle life. And but that that seems to be less and less significant now. And uh, uh, there's musical chairs every year, and, and it has to do with the almighty dollar. Yeah. Speaking of dollars, there seems to be more sentiment now than ever that the players should be compensated with more than just a college education. That money should enter into it above the table. That's uh, that's an age-old argument, uh, and uh, uh, I was just listening to something recently on television about it. It's very, very interesting. Uh, the money that comes into the NCAA is humongous, and, uh, and but it all comes from basketball. You know, they don't have anything to do with football. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that, and they don't have anything to do with the bowl games. Uh, the NCAA only uh, conducts uh, championships uh, in. in Men's basketball, women's basketball, and then the other sports, which which make no money whatsoever, and they fund all these these sports out of that. Uh, there are a lot of people making a lot of money uh, in the NCAA, no no doubt about that, and and and, and 
could be seriously overpaid. But uh, when you talk about paying student athletes, you, you, you know, there are thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of them, and, and you're talking about the women's golf team and the women's volleyball team and the men's track team, and you're talking about thousands and thousands going on a payroll. And if you do that, you're not going to have the money for the facilities, and you're not going to have the money for the uniforms, you're not going to have the money for travel, you're not going to be able to fund all these teams. So there is another side to it. Don't forget cheerleading. We have... Our first guest is still in studio. She was a lovable cheerleader, and you got to pay for those cheerleaders, too. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And <laughs> Kentucky has won the national championship in, in that area time and time and time again, more than any other school. Now, once upon a time, you were a star NBA player with a phenomenal hook shot, a shot that no longer exists, you know, hasn't since Kareem Abdul-Jabbar pretty mm-hmm. much left. We're never going to see that again, are we? I don't think I don't think so. Uh, I, I the player today's player is, is certainly more athletic uh, than than the players 20, 30, 40 years ago, and they they use their quickness and their jumping ability to to get off the shot, and uh, and somehow they don't have the patience uh, to work on on some of these areas. Uh, for instance, like the free throw. <laughs> My God! If you can't make seventy, at least seventy percent of the free throw, you ought to stay there until you, until you can hit, you know, uh, seventy or eighty percent. Hit, hit seven out of ten. Any any time sitting there, you ought to. The coach ought to make you stay there. And the hook shot's the same thing. It's just a foreign shot. It's 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 a. It's almost like a layup where the, the finger roll. Uh, a hook shot is almost like that, and it, it's alien to anything you've ever done because you're not pushing the ball and to get any feel out of the touch of the ball as you hook it, uh, it's just totally, totally different than, than any other shot, and it takes tremendous patience. And uh, my hook shot uh, was developed over six or eight years uh, through high school and through college and then on into professional basketball. Kept kept uh, working on it and moving out a little farther with left hand and right hand and uh, different nuances with it, and I, I, I just don't think players now have the patience, and they don't maybe need it. Uh, of course, Karim, Karim Abdul-Jabbar, he certainly had seven foot two or three. He did, he really didn't need 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 the hook shot, but uh, and 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 Wilt Chamberlain really didn't have a hook shot. Bill Russell really didn't have a hook shot. There weren't as many around as you as you might think, but uh, it's it's a lost art really. Did you get a lot of grief in St. Louis, being that they traded the rights to Bill Russell to acquire you? I don't. I I, uh, I was a little old six four college center, and uh, actually the trade really was for Ed McCauley, who was with the Celtics, who was a St. Louis University ball player, uh, and uh, had played for the Celtics a few years, and the and it was the second year that the Hawks would be in St. Louis having come down from Milwaukee. So they wanted some local recognition there. So they really went after a, a star in the NBA at that time, Ed McCauley. And I was just sort of thrown in on it for the Hawks draft choice, uh, which was the number two draft choice that year, believe it or not. And uh, the number one draft choice was the Rochester's Royals, and, and they took Cy Hugo Green. And then the Celtics came along and took Bill Russell. So... Uh, the Hawks had a chance to have Bill Russell. Uh, the Rochester Royals had a chance to have Bill Russell. So 
So they just can't, can't blame it on me. Kind of like Chicago with Sam Bowie uh, getting taken by Portland and the Bulls getting Michael Jordan. <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, right, right, right. So, but it turned out uh, actually well for both both teams. Uh, my for my first year, we played Boston in the championship. Boston had never won anything, and they had Bill Russell, Sherman, Cousy, Heinz, and Ramsey, Luskatov, those guys, and and they beat the Hawks. In, in, in a double overtime in the seventh game at Boston for their first championship, a double overtime in the seventh game. The next year we beat them in six games in, in St. Louis for our championship, and they ran off a bunch of them after that. But we, we played them four out of six years and won one of them. And uh, as it turned out, it turned out to be a pretty good uh, trade for everybody. Yeah, you know, if Ben, the owner, Ben Kerner, had been a little more patient and waited for Russell to come from the Olympics, he, he might have had a dynasty. Well, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of social things were, were going on at that time. time. Uh, St. Louis was a, a, a southern sort of, sort of city and Bill Russell was coming from San Francisco and, and I think there was some talk that, that maybe he, he wouldn't be happy in St. Louis at that time. So some politics were involved at that time. You were teammates in college with Frank Ramsey. We had Frank on last week. Do you ever talk any trash with Frank and say, listen, you know, I'm the first guy from Kentucky to make the Basketball Hall of Fame? <laughs> we were we were teammates. We were roommates. We were great friends. He has a son named Cliff. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we've been close all, all through the years. Highly competitive in professional basketball. Just uh, And we, we there were only eight teams uh, in 1956. Uh, when we started playing, uh, the, the Minneapolis Lakers were in Minneapolis. They weren't in Los Angeles. The Warriors were in Philadelphia. So St. Louis was the farthest west, farthest south team at the time. So we had to end up, and we still played the 82 games, so we ended up playing eight, eight or nine times during the season. Then you'd play another maybe seven games in the playoffs. You might play, play somebody 17, 18 times, and in that time you could build up a little animosity. No matter how close your friendship was, because you could remember what happened before and so forth. But we we maintained a great relationship and go, would go out for dinner after games, that kind of thing. Not quite like the camaraderie I see today uh, among among the among the players, where they're hugging after the ball games and doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, when we didn't even shake hands after I mean, we were. We were really incensed after a loss, and the last thing we wanted to do is shake shake somebody's hand. Now, growing up in St. Louis, I remember listening to Buddy Blattner broadcast the games and call you Little Abner. Is he the one who came up with that nickname? Yes, he did. Uh, weirdly enough, uh, and it, it was really sort of radio name. Nobody else ever ever called me that. Uh, and I asked him about it one time, and and there was a Broadway show, uh, Little Abner, which became a big movie and all that kind of thing, and. And the Broadway lead was, uh, I think, Peter Palmer, I think, isn't it, Palmer? And he, I think he had been a football player at Illinois, and he had the lead. He was a dark-headed uh, guy about my size. And uh, Blattner thought that uh, I looked a little bit like a little Abner, so he started calling me a little Abner, which, which stuck uh, throughout all these years. We're going to have Clyde Lavelle on after you. Do you have any dirt on Clyde or any, any stories about him? Oh, Clyde was a natural comedian. Just uh, one of the funniest natural guys, and, I, and he'll be funny on, on the radio too. Uh, just had a real, real sense of humor, uh, uh, unusual talent, had a real wheelhouse 
a hook shot uh, with his right hand, and then he gets set out at the top of the key and and hit a hit a which would now be a three pointer. We didn't have that when when we played, but it opened up our middle, uh, and Russell would have to come out and and then it'd give Bob and Pettit and me a chance to operate maybe underneath. Uh, but uh, uh, wasn't the, wasn't the swiftest guy getting up and down the court, you know, back on defense that kind of thing. But he had a long lustrous career and. Uh, he, uh, Charlie Sher was our center uh, from Bowling Green, Ohio, 6'10 guy, the year that we won it in 56 and, and uh, 57. And then we, then Clyde came in and Larry Faust came in and Zelmo Beatty came in. So we had quite a few uh, big pivot men from, from year to year. Ben loved uh, to bring people in. It was great talking to Cliff, and I'm not going to ask who you're picking to win the NCAA this weekend, <laughs> I could guess. I'm keeping my fingers crossed <laughs> and still believe in miracles. Sounds good. And I don't think you're going to need a miracle for Kentucky to win, but mm-hmm. I'm rooting for Kentucky right now. Thank you. Thank you. Again, that was Basketball Hall of Famer Cliff Hagan. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we have another gentleman who won an NCAA title, but at Kansas, won an NBA title, and also made the Basketball Hall of Fame. That'll also be cl- won an Olympic title. An Olympic title. I forgot one of his titles. When we come back, we'll have on Clyde Lavella. You're listening to Sports and Torts. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs> 